And we're back. It's Tuesday, the 15th of October, 2019. This is episode 122. Uh, As a reminder, if you are a fan of this podcast, please don't forget to follow me on all social media at Autonomous Hogue. There's a Patreon page you can support at patreon.com slash autonomous hogue. And of course, please continue to leave your spectacular, stellar five-star reviews and ratings over on Apple Podcasts. Those are a tremendous help indeed. And of course, if you'd like to be a guest on this show, that is how all guests reach out to me, head on over to, wait for it, it's not markhogue.com. There has been a change, a small change. It is now podcast.markhogue.com. So then, today, Blickfeld. If that name sounds familiar, that's because, well, good. You listened to episode 117 a few weeks ago when we discussed their announcement for a new MEMS-based long-range LiDAR. And as promised, or at least as hoped, I have managed to get them on the show. And today I'm thrilled to share with you a really fantastic conversation with their founder, Florian Petit. And I have to say, you know, when I when I record these episodes, um, a lot of folks have wondered how this is done because, no, I do not – unfortunately, I do not yet have guests here in – Uh, my little recording studio. Rather, instead, this is all done remotely through the Zencaster platform, which by and large works really well, but due to a bit of inherent delay, since all the audio is stored in browser on each participant's side, there is a bit of delay, a bit of crosstalk, and so I need to spend some time to kind of go through and kind of splice everything together. I just use iMovie. It's pretty simple, really, but it is a bit tedious. And I have to say, for this particular episode... I found myself continuously getting distracted rather than just doing the necessary bits of work to edit and splice together the audio. I found myself just listening to segments of our conversation because it really is pretty fascinating stuff. So I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. So without further more to say about this, please sit down, get comfortable. 30 minutes with Florian Petit, the founder and CEO of Blickfeld in Munich begins now. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So Florian, great of you to join us. Thanks yeah, so much for thanks. being here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so uh, obviously really eager to kind of learn a bit about your background and how you ended up at Blickfeld and kind of what you guys are up to. Yeah, great. So um, my background is robotics. I studied that here at the Technical University of Munich in Germany. and went on to have a stint at Stanford University was at the German Aerospace Center here close by Munich and finally obtained my PhD in the field of robotics from ETH Zurich in Switzerland. And um, that is actually, in Stanford, it was actually the first time I came in contact with autonomous cars back in 2007 
um, the DARPA grant challenge was uh, going on and um, Stanford were, was pretty successfully participating in that. And I would say the first test cars were pretty obvious recognizable because of they had these characteristics um, sensor hats sitting in the middle of the rooftop. And actually mm. that the first time I got in contact with that and that made me think about um, autonomous cars. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So, so, okay. So then you then launched Blickfeld and your primary focus is, and I say this affectionately, you are another company trying to really perfect let's say the art and the science of LIDAR. And I mean that quite literally because to the point of the smaller scale, physical scale of MEMS and indeed solid state LIDAR generally, um, it is an art and a science, right? Because these things have to, well, be small and, and pretty and not look like ridiculous appendages on cars. So so you decided to start your own thing then with Blickfeld. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, actually, it took me about 10 years to start Blickfeld. Uh, oh, is that all? <laughs> yeah, so um, I uh, I went on, you know, had a short stint sailing and then traveling the world. And when I came back, it was interesting for me that um, the autonomous test cars still looked the same. I mean, I got, mm. they got a bit more polished in the in the way they were more more designed, but they still had the sensor racks sitting in the middle of the rooftop. And mm. uh, further, a lot of my colleagues pulled from robotics to autonomous driving, and that. It made me think, I mean, why are all the people going to autonomous driving first? And second, what, how can it be that we, you know, double our computational power every other year almost? And one of the most important sensors for autonomous driving more or less stays the same for 10 years. Mm. And then that actually got me starting Blickfeld. We, we analyzed that the mechanical complexity is here, the main problem of the, of the LIDARs. LIDARs have been around for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years, for a long, long time in robotics. We have seen them all over the place. Mm. Um, but, you know, the next step to getting them in the, into the cars, um, that requires, in our eyes, to reduce this complexity. And that's how Blickfeld started. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. No, it makes sense. All right. So, yeah, why don't we dive in then? I mean, as I mentioned in a prior episode, several episodes back, the timing for this conversation is really quite perfect. Uh, you guys just put out a press release um, that you've got a new MEMS LiDAR that you've just launched, I suppose. So if you can kind of give a bit of high level on that, obviously, I have a bunch of questions I'd love to ask, but want to hear the pitch from your mouth first. So our our analysis of this of the lidar space was that it's not. I mean, uh, of course, it's hard to build lidars. However, it's not that hard. You just need a few very good optical engineers, and we see around the world actually there are lots of um, research labs, but also companies building lidars. So in our opinion, the problem is not building lidars in general, not building a lidar or let's even say a hundred lidar or a thousand lidars. The big question of lidar is how to build actually hundreds of millions of them. We are producing each year around 80 million cars. If we assume now that each one has at least one, we are ending up at the, with at least 80 million lidars. And that's actually the hard part, how to build a lidar system which is mass producible where we can use automatic production processes to build them in a high quality with a high reliability. And actually, I think that most, um, that there are not so many companies foc focusing on exactly that problem, but that is the core of LIDAR in my opinion. 
So this is really interesting. I just want to pause on that point for a moment. So it never even occurred to me. So just to be super clear, you're you're, you're suggesting your point is that the uh, that 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 the cost element associated with lidar, at least traditionally, so has been less about the components and more about the scalability of output. So um, my point is, if you have a mechanically very complicated system, um, it's actually hard to produce, and this will um, permit to have like a, a, a affordable cost. Like let's comp compare it to computers. Ah, yes, yes, I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So 50 years ago, we built computers out of relays. Can you imagine building supercomputers only with relays? No, you needed right. to have silicon technology just because of it, it's yeah. easier to, to produce and it's highly scalable and it has many, many advantages. And I think this... Uh, so in other words, e even if the individual costs were not necessarily the issue, issue for the components, it's the physical manufacturing of the complexity of the components that drives the cost of, up. Yeah, no, I understand. Mm -hmm. Exactly. In our opinion... Um, a technical system is then a good system uh, if it is simple. And I mean, even if you have yeah, complex manufacturing technologies, but if, it, if they are simple to apply, and I mean, MEMS is extremely complicated, obviously, but it allows you, once you have figured it out, it allows you to build uh, extremely um, beautiful and simple systems. Right. So let's dive into that distinction for a moment. So obviously people, I think, certainly everyone listening to this podcast is certainly familiar with the more traditional kind of rotating apparatus type of LIDAR. Um, obviously then this, I, I maybe it's only in my head, but I know that sometimes there seems to be a lumping together, a grouping together of MEMS LIDAR and purely solid state LIDAR, where the former, of course, still has, strictly speaking, mechanical components in the form of these little tiny mirrors, right? Whereas purely solid state LIDAR, of course, by definition, has no moving parts whatsoever, right? So um, I guess the first question I want to ask is, apart from, well, cost, I suppose, um, is, is there a reason why, the, I should say, what is the reason for which you've decided to pursue MEMS rather than purely solid state? Yeah, so um, actually um, going from mechanical to MEMS just has, has that advantage that MEMS devices can be produced at extremely high accuracy in extremely high mm. volume, very repeatable. So um, mm. we actually built our MEMS mirrors. We specifically designed MEMS mirrors for the LiDAR application. And, and I can go into details in a second. What I mean with that is, um, so we uh, used MEMS because of it allows us to build a somewhat mechanical device a mirror for beam deflection and that at a, a extremely high precision and scalable which means um, we can build uh, hundreds of mems actually um, of uh, one wafer and that just makes you know helps us bringing um, cost down i see interesting what way is, i mean i think why everybody's so excited about solid state is because of solid state actually i mean you can consider it as a brick and a brick obviously is very mechanically robust so the question is not actually um uh, the advantage is not having a solid state lidar what people really want is have a mechanically robust lidar and the problem about the mm. classical mechanical lidars is that they have Gears and gears, uh, bearings and gears, and that there's friction, and friction means sure. abrasion, and that means loss in precision. Whilst if you have components which yep. don't have that, for example, MEMS mirrors, yep. um, actually, you basically have, uh, you during lifetime, you uh, maintain the extreme high precision, and that is what we are shooting for. 
I'm guessing there's also a thermal component here to the, to all this, right? I'm guessing that <clears throat> it's easier to manage any sort of thermal issues with MEMS rather than conventional LiDAR? Absolutely. So I think there are a few mm -hmm. more things where we have to look into also assembling um, of them is, is, an, is another point. I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So quite a few episodes back, I did, an ep I did a discussion on the, shall we say, the two primary flavors of LiDAR with respect to the frequency of yes. the light being emitted. So obviously 905 versus 1550. Um, so can, I, can we dive into a bit of that discussion insofar as what you guys are using? My assumption is that you're still using 905 -ish. Yes, we are. And um, okay. so what, what we did at Blickfeld, we built a MEMS mirror specifically made for LiDAR application. Why do I say that if we are talking about laser frequencies? Because of our MEMS mirror doesn't care which laser frequency you are using. Uh, we laugh 1550, uh, so 1550 nanometers. Um, we think it's a great wavelength because of the eye is less susceptible to it and you can shoot more energy out. So that's a great thing because of you can rather easily build a long range system. The biggest problem about these frequencies is that you need extremely Cost. expensive lasers. And that's yeah, the only problem yeah. we have with it. We don't care, actually, which wavelengths you shoot at our mirrors at. But we, what we do care about is cost. And if you look how cheap 905 nanometer laser diodes can get, and this is really in the single digit dollar costs, that is the big advantage. I mean, we are looking at automotive. If you want to have uh, components that have to be extremely cheap to be applied, and that's the only reason why you, where we um, need 905. And our mirror um, allows us to to um, use 905 nanometer lasers to have push the cost down and still have extremely high um, performance. Yeah, so I guess that's the real trick, right? So obviously, um, your friendly competitors over at Innoviz, obviously, they made some news a while back with uh, the deployment of um, their solid state 905 nanometer uh, LiDAR as well. And I guess that's the trick is how do you get 905 to go sufficiently far enough, um, given that the power output has to be relatively reduced? I think something like what? Isn't it the case that 1550 could theoretically be something like 40 times more powerful, right? Due to the uh you know with respect to safety for eyes and things like that yeah so i guess that's the real trick is yeah. you get something which is inherently less powerful yet can somehow get far enough down the road at least say two or three hundred meters uh, exactly and that is um that is exactly the problem we are tackling so the problem here is that um there's nothing like an unsafe um frequency it's always about sure. the amount of power you shoot out. And with 905, it is more right. limited, which means to get to these ranges, what you need to do is you need to catch more photons. And of course, mm -hmm. you can do that by increase your um, photon detection efficiency. So make better detectors. However, I mean, obviously, we're using the best we can get. Um, so yep. the one so further solution to catch more photons is just to increase your aperture. So Similar right. like a cat, when it gets dark, it opens their eyes. It actually increases the, de the size of the detector. We also... I mean, I was going to say a camera, but cat works. <laughs> <laughs> true, true, true. <laughs> um, so, so, so what we try to do is... To be, uh, well, what you need to do is you need to build a MEMS mirror large enough to catch enough photons to get to these ranges. And that is exactly our USP. We build MEMS mirrors, which have a rather big size with a rather large deflection angle, which gives a good field of view. 
Um, so to the to the desire of being as technical as possible while still uh, approachable to everyone listening, I mean, we're talking about MEMS mirrors. These are by definition, well, micro. These are already very, very small. I mean, how much variability is there in the size of these mirrors insofar as making them as big as possible to capture as much light? So the analogy that I'm thinking of is something like, say, um, say pixels in a camera, right? So obviously you can have a ridiculous number of pixels, but if the pixels, you know, if they're getting smaller and smaller, eventually you're just going to get a really grainy image. Um, sure, it'll have many pixels, but they'll be grainy. So what kind of variability does one have when trying to make larger that which is by definition very, very small? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's a very good question. Because of normally in silicon, you want to make everything as small as possible because of in silicon space oh, is money. So, but in optics, yep. it's different. In optics, actually, um, you need to have a large aperture to get enough light. Right. So this is contradictory. Right. And actually, that's exactly what we saw also in the field where, where um, the uh, MEMS, other MEMS manufacturers struggle with. To build a large MEMS mirror, in, um, you need and, and still keep the cost down. What you need is a very simple design. So actually, our MEMS mirror has the size of 12 um, millimeter diameter which is extremely large mm. for silicon. However, the way we build it is so simple that it is extremely cost efficient. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, so what's next? What's the next, what's, well, actually, and when I say next, let me ask this question first of all. So, so again, by your own admission, there are many, many companies working on really perfecting LIDAR in whatever form, format, or flavor, frequency it takes. Mm -hmm. um, do, you, do you anticipate, do you hope, do you imagine that the future will be reduced to just sort of one or two or three players in the LiDAR space? Or is it likely to remain a really largely competitive space for quite some time to come? Might there, in fact, be a time where really there's going to be one set standard, either a standard as defined by the technology uh, or as, frankly eventually as defined as mandated by regulation. Oh yeah, very, very interesting point. So what I see is that LiDAR technology has applications actually wherever there is space. Wherever you, you can walk around or something moves, LiDAR has an inner, inherent advantage as it measures distances in comparison, right. for example, to a camera. A camera always needs this interpretation. So, um, but if you look at the cameras, you can buy a very expensive Hollywood camera from Ari, which costs, I guess, millions, or you can buy a yep. cheap smartphone camera. So there's a big range of types of cameras. And I um, would say it's the same too for LiDARs. And some lighters are very good for high-performance application. I don't know if you have a jet or a helicopter. And some are good for very cheap applications in the smartphone. And um, what I see, there's um, not so many uh, companies working on uh, lighters for uh, you know real autonomous driving applications. Today, just autonomous driving is the first thing which comes in mind if you talk about lighters. But actually, um, I, there, in my opinion, there are not so many companies working, having a solution, you know, for the autonomous driving problem, which is 
Well, that's building, a good point. One of the other applications, of course, 3D mapping, I suppose, right? I mean, you've got an airplane flying over terrain to 3D map buildings and terrain, right? That's another use case, which I would imagine requires a vastly different sort of LIDAR to what you'd be using in the car. So I think that's your point, no? That there are indeed many different applications, and therefore there will always be a need for many different sorts of companies producing many different sorts of LIDAR. Yeah, exactly. And even the mapping, you have various flavors. Some need high precision because of you're using it on drones, which fly high. And others, right. you can imagine having like a high definition mapping system on each cab uh, driving through the through the cities each day. And I think even there, you need different types of lighters. Right. Well, good. So let's let's then kind of drill deeper into the future, shall we? <laughs> so so okay. So I'm going to open the inevitable can of worms, as we say. Um, so two two comments. Obviously, we've all heard Elon's famous comment about lidar. I'm not going to repeat it. It's not polite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and comment number two. I've heard it often enough. Now. Of course. <laughs> uh, comment number two is, so um, Chris Urmson recently spoke with Lex Fridman, and he made an interesting admission. I don't know if you, if you heard this. He suggested, he suggested that, look, maybe LIDAR is indeed an interim, imperfect, suboptimal solution. Maybe. If you accept the premise that in the future, eventually, if computer vision continues on its exponential improvements, then of course, the end game is that computer vision should, by definition, be good enough to replace effectively human eyes and cognition. And therefore, sure, LIDAR should not be necessary one day. So, but his whole point was that it's better to get an admittedly suboptimal solution on the road today as quickly as possible to help increase traffic safety, rather than to wait for the, shall we say, the super optimal solution, potentially 10, 20 years down the road. That's a loaded set of comments, and it's not even really a question. So let me just put a question mark on the end of it and phrase okay. it as a question. What do you think of all that? Um, how, what, what is your take on that sort of perspective? Mm -hmm. So um, LIDAR means safety. So it is a direct distance or even velocity measurement. And to be able to exactly know how far other traffic participants like vehicles, pedestrians, or bikes are away is just increasing the safety enormously. And that is why people are so uh, excited about LIDARs. I would actually ask uh, or turn this around. So who would dismiss a affordable LIDAR and um, maybe risk that safety is going down. And I think nobody can do that. So the our clear goal is to build lighters which are affordable because of the increased safety, full stop. Will it uh, at the end be, uh, give, will exist different technologies which are able to you know, make this um, autonomous driving happening? Uh, hopefully, I mean, uh, isn't it great that it changes all the time? I mean, we, we in our young age as a startup already um, developed so many different and, and advanced technologies and it goes on and on and on. We see like each year coming better detectors out, you know, we improve the MEMS. That's great. I'm, I'm, I'm to totally excited that there will be different, better LiDAR solutions. And if there are different imaging solutions, 
fantastic. But um, I agree also uh, with Chris Ermsen that we need today a solution, and, and today the best solution, in my opinion, without without doubt, to make safe driving happening is LiDAR. Well, to be clear, I agree completely that we absolutely need to prioritize getting something, which is at least some non-zero value better than humans on the road as quickly as possible. I agree with that. Let me just conclude this brief segment of this question then by asking, because it's a somewhat controversial thing to ask, I mean, then is the logical conclusion, in your opinion, that, say, Elon's claim, because he is truly unique like literally he's the only one in the world, is his view therefore simply wrong? Um, yes, I think it's wrong. Today it's it's wrong. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. today we need to have, um, I mean, multimodality is the, the choice. I don't have a, you know, I, I would never argue that LiDAR is the only sensor you need for autonomous driving. I think it's an sure. enabling sensor. You need it definitely, but you, in the same way, you need cameras and radars because if they have a different modality, they can capture different information from the world. And at that point, we need to have as many. I mean, we need to have redundancy first, and then we need to have as many different information sources as possible to be as safe as possible. And that's that's. Uh, I think there's not. What should be the reason to dismiss a very good sensory information? Um, uh, that's that's something I um cannot understand. Yeah, no, that's a valid point. And certainly as a, as a huge aviation fanatic all my life, I've often drawn parallels to the aviation industry. And two things have really stood out for me. One is this notion of the eventual need to have sort of mandated regulation, if only to set standards. So one of the analogies I made the other day was, that we, you know, we've got standards for what your headlight beam looks like, how far it can go, the brightness. Um, yes. In the U.S., one could say it's overly regulated to the extent that we can't even bring over Audi's fantastic new sequential, uh, or not sequential, sorry, um, what do they call them? The, the the headlights, it's like a matrix headlight system that they've metric, developed. We yeah. can't have those here. Yeah, you know, so, so silly sort of things, in this case, perhaps overly regulated. My point is, not only do we need that, but I think it's also very, very important to sort of make sure that we have these redundant systems in place. Because again, you look at aircraft and they've got triple, quadruple backup systems. And yeah. yes, it's true. Obviously, I get it. You know, at least with Tesla, they've said they've, they've got now two different uh, hardware version threes, uh, I, I guess, in the car. But to your point, and indeed everyone else's point, backup should take the form not only in terms of a perfect clone system, but rather, you know, a multiplicity of technologies, right? So that you can have this yeah. overlaying sort of system. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, I don't know if it's the right way to, you know, directly have a regulation, but we have to have, uh, I mean, there is a very good, uh, regulation on how to establish safety in cars today and m maybe sometimes it's too far if you have don't have these audi headlights but it, it ensures um, safety and i think for autonomous driving i mean this is anyway a long road yeah who knows when level four level five cars come and we need to um, test a lot and gather a lot of information and make um maybe also slow steps towards the goal and we, we in my opinion we'll learn a lot how to build safe systems uh, along the way. And um, that's a good thing. 
Yep. No, that's a good point. And since you mentioned level four and versus level five cars, um, so in the five-ish minutes or so we have left, uh, let me ask you this question that I ask, well, everybody. And frankly, it's turned up a lot in conversation. I've become very convinced in the last, well, let me back up for a moment. In the beginning, I was always, you know, super excited about, oh, okay, let's, you know, let's get level five cars on the road as quickly as possible. And, oh, it's going to happen in five, maybe 10 years. And of course, now we're realizing, you know, it's probably going to take a little bit longer than that for level five cars. And more recently in the last several months, especially, I've become very convinced that, this pursuit for where companies are sort of hyping themselves, their products and promising the world, this pursuit of getting level five cars on the road has really become little more than a marketing stunt. My whole opinion has changed to why don't, why doesn't everybody just focus on broadly geofenced level four deployment, treating autonomous car level four autonomous cars as effectively virtual trains and virtual streetcars. you know that that's effectively what they would be why don't companies just focus on that and call it a day because level five will come eventually but the first company which can deploy level four throughout cities on dedicated lanes dedicated streets they will win yeah what do you I, think i i agree i agree i um think you there's even the possibility to go a step um, further back, which means level three driving. So um, if you have a scenario which is simpler, for example, a highway, um, it is possibly also simpler to deploy cars there. And if you if you look at legislation, it is pushing level three driving. Um, I think technology is closer to level three driving to, than to level four or five driving. And um, last but not least, um, maybe what I think is over, always a big driver is, of course, business. And if you look at the business models of classical OEMs, they sell cars. If you imagine to have a level three system, how to sell a level three system, I think is pretty clear for most of the OEMs. And, and that can be, in my opinion, a big, big driver. And actually, while I understand that there are huge limits to, to getting these systems on the car, um, I get a bigger and bigger fan of level th uh, three driving. And uh, I could imagine that, you know, collecting data and all, and all that stuff for training the algorithms and that level three can be here a big part of this autonomous driving revolution. That's a good point. I've... I've sort of assumed, well, and to my previous point about eventually needing regulation, at least here in the US, as you probably know, everything is left up to the states for the time being, which I think is really good, actually. Um, but my, 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 I guess my suggestion has been that once a manufacturer decides they're ready to deploy a level four vehicle, well, level four and above, um, then it would need to be subjected to some sort of, you know, country right countrywide federal wide regulation um so to your point about level three yes i'm a huge fan and especially because i think that can still be left to the states at least you know here in the u.s mm -hmm. um and speaking of which my understanding is that germany is taking a really incredible path towards autonomy if i'm not mistaken aren't isn't isn't some stretch of the autobahn somewhere having autonomous car only lanes being developed or set aside i should say uh, so what um, is happening here in Germany is that there are several parts of the autobahn where you have basically test where test tracks where it's allowed to drive partially um, autonomous and to test um, test the cars. Uh, Hopefully I not the Nürburgring. 
And then you have a Greek. Um, yeah, race cars. <laughs> I don't know about autonomous. Oh, yeah, there are, there are autonomous race cars, right? No. Um, uh, yes, I think um, Germany is always perceived a, a bit slower in this direction. I mean, um, the, I, I think it has pros and cons. The cons is uh, being slow. The, the pro is that they are extremely safety aware. I think the car manufacturers and suppliers here are extremely cautious to build the safest possible um, cars. And actually, that's, I think, which is positive about that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Absolutely. I agree. Um, a quick question before closing out. It's sort of off point, um, but it was, just, it was just brought to my attention the other day. I, I learned of a company, uh, they're called Adasky, and they're working on um, essentially, it's basically forward-looking infrared, which presumably, I don't know much about them yet, but I'm guessing it's going to be looped in as another layer of data. I mean, to your point, you're going to have computer vision, LIDAR, radar, sonar, et cetera. And I guess now also forward-looking infrared, the idea being that in poor weather, presumably then the infrared, of course, could still detect well, things that are alive. And admittedly, also, I guess, even other vehicles due to their heat signature, right? So I guess mm -hmm. my question for you is, and again, this is sort of off point, but I'm just kind of curious because I just learned about them. That's, intuitively, at least, that seems like a pretty obvious idea. Why is it the case that we haven't seen any applications of forward-looking infrared as a complementary technology to, the, to all the rest of the various technology suite uh, in autonomous vehicles? Oh, I thought you were uh, asking now, why isn't there infrared LIDAR being able to... Or, oh, actually, I'll, yes, or, or that. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that is a good question. Why hasn't that's that technology... That's a good point, of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a, that's a, always a hard question, to, to why a technology hasn't been more um, uh, getting into the market. I mean, it's, I think it's pretty well known in security application where it, it um, proved its ground a lot. Um, I guess the guys from other guys are, um, they're the better, uh, guys to answer the question. I mean, that, that, that's a fair point. Uh, I, I'm always eager to get, uh, outside points of views. Uh, but yeah, no, it's just cause I, the only use case I've seen in cars, frankly, was really more of a novelty, right? Mercedes and BMW had released, uh, infrared cameras, but I think that was just a novelty. I, I didn't really see the application of that, the, the practical application, but. In a head up display um, application, I think, right? I'm sorry? In a head-up display um, setup, even. Heads-up display, I see quite a good a good value there. I've just never seen an infrared image projected onto a heads-up display. If it did, mm -hmm. then I would see some value to it. Yes, I would. Mm -hmm. um, very cool. So I guess to close it out then, what, what what's next for you guys? I mean, is there any sort of um, sort of next step you feel like sharing insofar as maybe partnerships, uh, seeing your product in the wild and some other vehicles? Uh, anything you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, so we um, just set up our production facility. Um, we actually adopted there a, a camera line to build LiDARs, and that is extremely capable. Uh, it will be able to produce several hundred thousand units per year. That is actually what, what keeps us going at the moment. Uh, regarding corporations, maybe soon. I cannot tell too much now, but um, we, are, we yeah. are very happy. It's going very well. We are looking into bringing this technology really to the masses and, and changing their, uh, the world. That's what we think we can do. And that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is really great. I, it, it really never occurred to me the issue was largely with scaling output to such a degree. So that, that's really quite 
quite impressive. So, well, very good. Florian, with respect to your time, we should uh, call it a wrap. Obviously, it's been really great connecting and having this conversation. Please feel free to reach out with any, you know, exciting news in the future. And uh, until then, I wish you guys the best of luck. Thank you so much. Mark, thanks a lot. All righty. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Well, before signing off today, just a quick heads up that on Friday, I've got a pretty cool episode planned for you. I say planned. uh, It actually kind of just fell into my lap totally unplanned, thanks to Scott Fosgard and Charlie Vogelheim. Uh, If those names sound familiar, that means you're quite nicely tuned into the automotive space indeed. Uh, But Scott, Charlie, thanks so much for the invitation to the fifth annual Silicon Valley Reinvents the Wheel, which was pretty much as amazing as you can imagine. And during my time there, I decided, of course, to interview some of the folks in attendance, including the likes of NVIDIA and Velodyne. So please do be sure to tune in on Friday for that episode, which will be airing sometime, hopefully before about midday as usual. Right. So until then, thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of the week. See you back here on Friday. Bye-bye.